This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Now and Not Yet. Pressing in when you're waiting, wanting, and restless for more. Written and narrated by best-selling author Ruth Cho Simons and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. And now, Christ and Pop Culture presents Persuasion with Aaron Straza and Hannah Anderson. everyone, I'm Erin Straza, and with me is Hannah Anderson. We're your host for Persuasion, the place where fine ladies, rational minds, and the best kind of company gather to discuss all sorts of ideas and issues. Today's episode of Persuasion is sponsored in part by LifeWay's Christian Standard Bible. It's a translation that presents the truth of God's Word with accuracy and clarity. The CSB equips today's readers for lifelong discipleship with hundreds of designs to choose from at csbible.com. I'll get that posted in the show notes for you so you can check it out later, because right now we have the final installment of our For God and Country series. If you've been listening along, we sure hope you have, we've been tackling a variety of ways that faith and politics collide, so important in this season. And as we talk through these things, our aim has been to gain some clarity in how we think about and hold to our political perspective. Perspectives. Now, Hannah, one way that I have been especially challenged throughout all of these conversations is that I feel like my my view of how I can invest in the common good has really expanded. Almost like there are so many ways that I could be involved and could contribute. It it's actually been kind of exciting and challenging. I think give me a little bit of hope. Yes. I've really appreciated the opportunity to reframe the political discourse um, around common good, serving our neighbors well, and kind of moving it outside of just electoral politics. I think a lot of times when we hear people talk about politics, quote unquote, what they really mean is that cycle of electoral power um, where people are just going from candidacy to candidacy trying to amass positions. And what we tend to see, um, you know, at the grassroots level is not the actual working of government or, you know, policy making, we tend to see the fight and the struggle to be in positions. So it's been helpful to me to kind of take that step back and say, wait a minute, what's the whole point of this? Yes, we're in the middle of an election cycle. Yes, these are real questions. But what's the point? Why are we even doing this? Why are we dragging ourselves through this horribleness? It feels like there's a better connection in my mind now that there are some people who we elect and they are in the day in and day out running of society, of our of our local governments, and then on up to state and national. So we have those people who are dedicating all their time, day in and day out, getting those things done. But 
that's not all there is. It's not just those politicians doing their jobs. It's also all of us as citizens. It's what work are we involved in? What's our community involvement? What's community service or charity work? Um, there are all of those pieces and that all works together to create the sort of world society life that we want to live. And that has been really exciting to me to see that there are so many ways to invest. And it's not any one thing. It's not just becoming a politician and and needing to be driven by the popularity vote of the day. Um, it's not just that. It's not just giving my one vote. There are all kinds of things that contribute to my participation to the common good. And so I hope that all of you listeners out there have felt that same sense of, um, I'm going to say relief, that it's not just one thing. And it's not just that situation of politics where it feels like it can be a little bit on the the dark side. Mm. Yeah, and I think taking this approach gives us a little more margin, a little more breathing room, um, like you're describing, but it also informs the process of elections. So it's almost as if coming back, broadening out, talking about creating public policy, um, communities that flourish, uh, thinking about the question of political involvement as one of seeking the common good isn't just necessary for our own kind of emotional capacity, but it also gives us perspective when we do have to elect people because there is a very obvious feature of political life, which is the electoral process. It is something that in our modern world or modern concept of government that we do have this responsibility to be part of choosing who will do this work, who will be tasked with pursuing the common good. And so we can escape the election cycle, um, but I do think framing it this way helps us within it. I think so, too. And I think that it um, gives us some answer or clarity to what I'm hearing from a lot of people is that voting can feel like such a weight or a burden, like instead of it being this, this honor or privilege, which a lot of us still can feel that way, there is also this weight or burden of like, oh, my goodness, who do I vote for? And especially in this season, I think so many people are feeling confused and worried about what will this vote mean? What what is it that I am voting for? And there's a swirl around it because of what we have going on in our country today. I think people don't know what to do. And so I'm hearing a lot of that. Like, I don't know what to do with this vote. You know, what I'm hearing, too, is how could we have millions upon millions of people in the United States that are eligible for election and we end up with these two candidates or these three or four <laughs> or five? Right, right. Because we don't want to be naive the the presence and the 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 largeness of the election cycle is not something maybe that we like but it is what it is it is dominant in our public conversation and because it looms so large because so much has been attached to it and fixed on it as this is the most important election cycle of the 
century or whatever. Because of that, it can make our participation within that very weighty. And so part of what we need to do in reframing this whole conversation is, yes, remember the purpose, remember the larger purpose of creating a flourishing society, of working toward the common good. This isn't necessarily a battle. This isn't a fight that we're trying to win. We're trying to create communities where even our ideological opponents can flourish in their their pursuit of true flourishing. Even if we reframe that, we also have to remember that there are pressures and tensions on us that want us to make the election and our vote the most important thing. And I think it's important for us as voters to kind of grapple with what exactly is happening in our vote, not what other people tell us is happening, but what is truly happening and what is our relationship to the process, what is our relationship to the vote that we are going to cast? And, and really, what are, the, what are we responsible for? What are the, the limits of our responsibility? What are the limits of what we can and can't control? Um, and, and that's harder to sort through because we're getting different messages about our vote. Oh, yeah, totally. And as we dig into that line of thinking, Hannah, one thing that comes to my mind is that the burden of my vote, our vote, whatever that one thing is that you're casting, it actually becomes heavier or more weighty when voting is your only participation in the common good. Like if you've checked out of the common good and been like, oh, that's out there or, oh, this voting process, I don't like it. I don't really want to know. I I don't want to be part of it. Then your one act is the one vote. And so then it does feel like, oh, I'm finally participating. Now I feel the weight of this thing because it's the one thing I'm doing. But if we're actively involved in the public square, not just within, let's say, the four walls of your church, but actively involved in the public for the common good, then voting just becomes one of the many ways that we invest and not the only way. So it can alleviate some of that burden, but also that active participation can help you make a better choice or a more informed choice. And like you said, what are all the things that are contributing to you understanding what thing you're going to vote for? There are lots of things that feed into our perception of what vote we want to cast. I think that's fascinating. That's just such a really great observation, Erin. The the weight of the vote becomes more when you are less involved. And I think that is absolutely true. It's true in my own experience. Um, It's true to what I observe, how conversations shape around me. Um, People who have very little investment, um, suddenly when the election cycle comes around, have very strong and strident opinions about what should and must be done for the common good. Um, and, And the people who are most consistently involved in influencing community growth and flourishing for goodness also tend to be the ones to understand how complicated it is. They, they understand that these are not simple decisions. These are not things that have easy, quick, pat answers. And they also have this level of, um, 
I don't know, just acceptance that it's going to be messy. It's so messy. Like there is no one clear cut, one way to do things. And there, any one decision that you make is going to have good and bad mixed up in it because nothing is separate. Nothing can be compartmentalized. Everything you choose touches something else. And when I think about voting and really, it is a burden. It's an honor, but it's a burden. There is an angst tied up into it. I vote for one candidate over the other, knowing that I don't agree with everything this person stands for. And something that has been helping me recently is that the one person I am aligned with and agree with the most is my husband, Mike, and yet we don't even agree 100%. And how he does things, some of it I don't like. And the way I do things, it's probably not what he likes. But I can't can't have 100% agreement everywhere. How do you live with that tension? How do you live with knowing that what you choose will have some negative impact on someone? That's hard, but it's the reality. There's no one vote that's going to be perfect or pure or right. However, having said that, that I, I agree with you completely. And and Nathan and I vote differently on things. Um, but that's not what I hear. What I hear from people is there is a way to achieve purity. There is a way for your vote to either um, convey a kind of righteousness to you, to, to give you some sort of moral standing over the person who votes differently than you do, or there's a way to keep yourself from being tainted by a vote. So, so I see this um, almost theological framing of the vote that we don't come out and say, well, some people do. Some people come out and say, if you're a Christian, you have to vote this way. And there's a moral angle to it. And it's sin if you do this. But there is this kind of morality in play that that almost seems to suggest that if you vote this way or you vote this way, it is about your personal righteousness, that this vote becomes almost an act of redemption or an act of um, participation in evil. I have I have heard that same thing, Hannah, and I think that's where that that burden or the guilt comes from that I've been hearing from so many people. It's the concern that if I vote one way or the other, what does that mean for my soul? Does that mean that this will result in my eternal damnation? I mean, it is serious consequence that people are assigning to the one vote that I cast and what does that mean? And so there is this burden, this guilt, this concern over it. Right. And and I see that on both sides of the political spectrum. You know, it, it's not just among conservatives. It's not just among progressives. There, there is this kind of framing that to me goes back to this pursuit of the individual good over the common good, because you're using your vote to establish your individual moral safety. And I'm not saying people who vote one way or another, like, it's not about the vote. It's about the process. It's about how you think and how you reach your conclusions. And, And what I see a lot in the rhetoric is, I could never vote for a person who is this evil. As if 
your vote is a direct correlation to your your works of righteousness. And if you were to cast that vote, you're going to um, almost put a heavier weight on the scales of your rightness or or wrongness in in terms of your purity of soul and and you wouldn't want to cast that vote to tip the scale right. out of your favor. And I do think I, I hear in terms of conscience and and then I do not want to downplay that this is something to wrestle with in your conscience. I absolutely feel that. And I have wrestled with this question for years in terms of what will my conscience allow? What um, must I do before God to do to vote in a way that I believe will best reflect his character and pursue the common good? That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about using the language of conscience to mean I want to remain pure. And that's a very different question because I I wonder if it's actually possible to remain pure in this world and and whether we're trying to use our vote to kind of justify, to self-justify. That's a very different question than my conscience is bound. And I think sometimes we use the language of conscience when we really mean I can't handle the brokenness of this world and I just want to withdraw and be able to pick the vote that will make me feel untainted. And I, I think some of this also comes back to how we order our value system of which things win out in terms of um, what we assign as right or wrong or more right or more wrong. And we have these um, rankings and maybe those rankings move up and down within our top 10. But if my number one is your number seven, then our votes may look different. And yet, we're not saying that all of these 10 things are needed and necessary in a good society. But depending on my perspective and depending on which thing I value ahead of another, that's going to change how I process the candidates or the issues or the policies. It will change that. And so understanding that there are complexities and reasons that contribute to why people land on different um, candidates or different parties or different votes, understanding that instead of judging it and assuming the other person is evil, I think this is essential for our political engagement. Right. And I think what we're trying to describe and we're kind of, you know, talking around it perhaps is the question of voting in humility, which is honoring the limits of both our knowledge of our decision-making, um, the limits of our own righteousness, to be quite frank, um, to, to accept the fact that it is impossible to, to live in a broken world and a broken system and, and not in some way be unsatisfied with your options. <laughs> and, and to make not a an unprincipled pragmatic decision not an ends justifies the means decision but what i like to call a principled pragmatism where where you have collected as much information as possible you have wrestled with it and part of that humility of wrestling with it 
means understanding that these are imperfect decisions because you're in an imperfect context and that other people are also making imperfect decisions. And if the standard becomes, well, I've made a perfect decision and you should have made the perfect decision too. (laughs) <laughs> right. Then right. then we've moved away from humility that accepts our limits and the limits of a broken context into a realm of self-justification that uses a vote to establish our righteousness. Hannah, what you're describing here is a different way of processing and and thinking that we need to wrestle out and grab onto, but that's not always easy. I mean, we need to have these conversations to see that they there are a lot of things feeding into them and and to see how we can think it through in a deeper way. And something that um, we've discussed and 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 appreciated so much about Christ and pop culture is the way that we've had these conversations and it's just challenging us to embrace the complexity. Um, I was able to chat a little bit with our editor-in-chief, Alan Noble. I'm sure all of you listeners out there are familiar with Alan. Um, he writes about politics and, and faith quite a bit. And he recently had an article with Public Discourse, and I had the chance to talk with him a little bit about how we can think more clearly about these things. Well, one of the things I really appreciated as you talked through this frame and this idea of um, valuing truth and when we don't, what will happen, you gave so many good examples of how the manipulation of truth contributes to chaos in in very real ways. And the examples that you gave, I, I could remember them from over the past few years. And it was like, oh, yes, I do remember how there's this question of even how many people were at the inauguration and photos show one thing, but he's saying something completely different. And then almost as if, oh, no, those photos were taken from a different angle. So then that's why it looks different. And just even that one incident, it reminded me of how unsettling it was in me when I was reading about that and trying to figure out, okay, well, what is real? What is true? And it really does erode at the core of, I see these things and I know what they mean. And it really tosses it all up in the air like, well, maybe, maybe it means this, maybe it means something else. And um, I think that word chaos is the thing that I feel like has been the thread over the last couple of years. And so I really appreciated you giving those examples because I, I think what you're saying is... Um, it is true and helpful, but to see it as it's playing out in real examples really helps me to process it and apply it to daily life. One of the, one of the I think I mentioned this, uh, yeah, uh, at least in an earlier draft, that one of the examples that kind of drove this home to me was conversations about the vaccine for, for COVID. And uh, a few weeks ago, a politician um, I think it might have been a major politician. I can't remember who, so I'm not even going to try to speculate. But but also some just some uh, pundits, political uh, commentators on 
on social media uh, said, you know, even if we get a vaccine before the election, I'm not going to trust it. I'm not going to I'm not going to trust because um, and, and people were, were responding to them on social media saying like you're this. So you, you think the FDA and all these major organizations in our in our government are just going to make a bad fake vaccine or a deadly one just to get the president elected. And so there was an, a fascinating example because um, potentially this is a person who is saying, I'm going to risk, you know, I'm going to risk harm to myself and to others because I can't trust the president. And the what I came back to in my mind was that, well, there have been a number of instances where the president has pressured um, branches of the government to report things the way he sees them. And so you can't say to someone like that, well, that's absurd. I, I do think it's very unlikely. I, I, I do think you should trust the vaccine, even if it did come out before the before the election, which it almost certainly won't. But, but uh, that was an example of the chaos because it's easy to see how deception hurts followers. So if somebody is a, a leader who's, who's a liar, it hurts people who follow them. That makes sense to us. But what, what we don't so easily see is that it also creates chaos to those who criticize them. So these were these figures who were opposed to the president, somebody in the Democratic Party, uh, sort of left-leaning political commentators. Um, but the nature of truth, when you can't know what is real and what is not, after a while, uh, you begin to question sort of everything. And so you know, going back to that inauguration, I think a lot of us at that time, at first we were surprised at how bold and absurd the untruth was. And it was just sort of like, well, why? I don't understand. I, why Why are you doing this? But then, you know, if you think about the larger political picture, you think, well, you know what? That was really weird, but who cares? I mean, and when you consider about, when you consider, you know, the economy and you consider, um, you know, race relations, you consider wars and all these other abortion, all these other things. It's like, well, who, I mean, it's trivial compared to these bigger concerns. But um, I think what we've seen over the last four years is that we, we don't get to isolate those sort of incidences that, that it turns out that if you sort of shrug your shoulders and say, well, it's, it's, this is trivial. It's not worth spending our time bickering about how many people are at the inauguration. Well, yeah, in a normal presidency, it wouldn't be. But when there's this pattern of uh, uh, telling people, trying to convince people that their eyes are wrong, um, it doesn't stay to the trivial things. It spreads. It moves to policies. It moves to the way that you know the president talks about the press and 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 citizens. And and that I think was a a, a mistake that was made um, by many, by many people is that that when these trivial lies or deceptions were presented, we were able to shrug them off as unimportant, but um, it spreads, it spreads, the chaos spreads. You know, Aaron, it's one thing to have the conversation about how we will behave, how we will think through a process, how we embrace our limits of what we can control and what we can't control, how we make decisions with imperfect um, options. Um, And all of those things in my mind kind of relate to what is my responsibility? 
What am I to do with the choices that have been presented to me? How am I supposed to engage um, with what I can control, which when I step into the electoral booth or put my envelope in the mail is I can control the decision I make to put a check by whoever's name. But it's a totally different conversation to come around and say, there's so much outside of my control. And at the end of the day, my one vote is important. And my participation in common life is important. But still, there's a lot that I can't control that's out of my hands. And how do I live at peace with knowing that I have to participate in this, but I also am not the only one participating in it? (laughs) Yeah, oddly enough, we live in a country where everyone gets a say, and those says don't all line up together. Oddly enough. <laughs> in perfect harmony. Oddly what? Enough. I know. Yeah, that that's really the question is um, being involved and doing your part and knowing it's still not all on you, but yet we are called to something. And I, I think that the the difficulty here that I'm seeing so much in the concern or the angst of who's going to win and, and what's going to happen to our country, I feel like there's um, this underlying concern and fear that's driving us to um, assume that we have more power over the world than we do. Um, I, I've even found I found it interesting or funny, Hannah, that it, the conversation goes well. God is in control and he's blessing our nation when my candidate wins. But when the opponent wins, it's a sure sign that God is punishing us for our sins. We're under judgment. And our, yeah. Yes, our entire country is on the verge of collapse. And, and it's all because of our votes. Like, there's so much sense of like, we we had the power and we've lost the power. And I do think you're, you're hitting on something here that's so important is that we think we have control. And we also think that the way that we are doing things is going to um, be the sure sign that God is for us or against us. And that to me seems a little bit out of bound and a little bit Uh, presumptuous that we actually have this much power over the entire world. I think it's just too, too much. And you're, you're pointing us back to the humility factor is really key here. Um, We're doing our part, but that really doesn't mean that I am going to control and sway the entire universe. Right. And and I think this um, vision of uh, how much power we have and don't have and the the fact, like you said, that we often think we have more power than we do also explains why we have so many power struggles. Uh, it, it explains why things are so fraught. It explains why things are framed as a war, why we have to take America back for God, um, why we have to do whatever is necessary in order to regain the power, because it's it's a vision that says there is a limited amount of power. It is primarily vested in human decision-making, and therefore, we must fight with other humans to gain control of the capacity to create policy and make decisions. And what it does is it removes God from the equation, and it mistakes the process of politics um, as the way God is establishing what he wants on this earth. And I think we have to go back to this 
it's a paradox. You know, don't get me wrong. Human will and, and God's sovereignty and God's control is one of those central paradoxes of the Christian faith that just will stymie you if you if you let it. But we have to understand that this is also in play in our political discourse. This fundamental question of uh, human will and what we can control versus what we can't, that ultimately God is at work even in the midst of decisions that may not go the way we hope they would go. And to to almost see the end as a justification for God's will, like whatever happens is what should happen as God's will. I, I think we need to reframe that as well. And I think in addition to that, it's reframing what is my role, because regardless of who is in the White House, we have a part to play and we have work to do, meaning there are things that we need to do day in and day out that that contribute to the kingdom and to caring for our neighbors and, and building the common good. And whoever is in the White House, that does not change my mandate. I still have work to do. And whatever is going on in government, I still need to depend on God to help me to lay down my life, to be a sacrifice for others, to serve those in need, you know, to refuse to give in to hopelessness or fear. Those things remain steady, regardless of who is in the White House. And now that I have had plenty of adult years, I've seen lots of shifts between the powers that be in the White House. And really, my mandate has remained the same. And there hasn't been any limit on me to sow God's love and grace and mercy in the world, except that I haven't done it. And so there are lots of opportunities for me to be doing these things, and it has nothing to do with who is in control. And so resting in that fact that God can empower me whatever circumstance I'm in, to contribute to the common good, that's also freeing because it doesn't matter who is in the White House because I still need to be part of it. So it, that part is the individual part that's still good and thinking it through in the individual way, but then also in the collective way, like you were saying, that that God is still doing what he's doing and we don't we aren't going to thwart that, but we would want to be aligned with it and and to see it come about for the people that we care about and for all of society. And if that is the conclusion of this series, if that's what we take away from talking about God and country for six episodes, it will have been worth it. Um, this vision of pursuing the common good, resting in the faithful, sovereign care of God who is Lord, regardless of who is sitting in the White House or um, anywhere else in power, that as Christians, we are called to participate in our communities, to create um, policies and structures that promote the flourishing and the good of our neighbor. But at the end of the day, we are citizens of heaven. And while these things matter, they are not ultimate. We can still be about um, the work of our Father, regardless 
of who wins an election cycle. Amen. Well, that does it for this episode of Persuasion, and it wraps our series for God and Country. I'll make sure that all of those episodes are posted in the show notes so you can catch any that you've missed. And we're so glad that you uh, contributed to the conversation. And if you aren't completely fatigued by political discourse yet, please come and join us on Twitter in conversation. We're at Persuasion CAPC. And you can always join us in the Christ and Pop Culture Members Forum for more discussion on these ideas. If you're not a member, you can become a member for just $5 a month and support this podcast um, and the other podcasts in the Christ and Pop Culture Network, um, as well as the articles and um, discourse that's happening in this community. Thanks again to LifeWay's Christian Standard Bible for supporting this conversation. Persuasion is produced by Jonathan Clausen, and it's part of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. You can give all those shows a listen at ChristandPopCulture.com or search for Christ and Pop Culture in the iTunes store. Thanks to you for listening to Persuasion, and we will catch you next time. You have been listening to Persuasion with Aaron Straza and Hannah Anderson, an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Please rate and review the show in iTunes and check out our other shows at ChristandPopCulture.com slash network. Theme music by Maiden Name. This episode was brought to you in part by Just These Guys, you know? A pastor and a psychologist team up to break down scripture and psychology, empowering you to transform by the renewing of your mind. Listen today at justtheseguys.podbean.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Just These Guys, you know?